Before you're seated, we invite you to the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. Out of curiosity, this uh, story of the um, fire falling from heaven uh, as the prophet Elijah faced the prophets of Baal. Um, how many of you have never heard this story before? Are there any that would be brave enough to admit that? Okay. How many of you remember this from Sunday school? Okay, a few. So most of you have heard of this as adults. Okay, that's good for me to know. Thank you. First Kings chapter 18. Uh, we're looking at verses 21 down through verse 40 in preparation for our time together in the Word of God. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god, small g. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. And there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood and said, Fill four water pots with water. Pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Father, I pray that you would direct our hearts to the word of God with a joy and anticipation of something new and precious and insightful that only your spirit can bring to our hearts. Father, teach us to love the living God. And may we serve the living God even as Elijah. May we learn the lessons you have for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Well, this is a story that never grows old, and there are some amazing lessons here for all of us. I trust that uh, my reason for asking how many of you have never heard this story, because for you, if you've never heard it, this is going to be exciting. 
just because you've never heard it. And as we read through the story, you've never seen anything like this. Now, some of you heard about it in Sunday school, and I'm assuming that, you know, the details might get lost a little bit in there, and maybe you have pictures of, you know, the, what it would have looked like. You know, I, I remember this as a kid, um, sitting in Sunday school with a flannel graph, tell you that how old I am, flannel graph, there's this picture, you know, of the, the dust, and it was always the same background, it seemed like. There was always a rock or two here or there. There was always like the, the bronze sky or something. And then there was, this, there was this altar, and there was Elijah, and there was a sacrifice on the altar, you know, and the, they didn't picture all the things the little boy wanted to see, like all the blood and all the Baal prophets and all that, but it was just the, I remember the altar, and I remember Elijah, and I remember how cool that was. Um, and so for me, reading through this story, I kind of picture that in my mind. And because it was the same flannel graph background, it wasn't the mountain. It was always just flat, you know, and that didn't quite picture it for me. And so, I, you know, for most of us, if we've got this in background from a little child, it might be hard for us to just pick up the little pieces because there are threads throughout this story that tell you some majestic things that are important for us today. But if most of you have learned as an adult about this, then you don't have the baggage of having all of that, the flannel graph and all of those things. Uh, but I will tell you this, there was a time when I was younger that uh, I used to think, well, wouldn't it be cool to go over to that uh, mountain and find the altar because the stones must be, you know, old and covered with moss today. How dumb was it to think that when the story says God burnt the stones too? They're not there. So you don't expect to find anything archaeologically there because of what happened. But it is, nonetheless, an amazing story. God is gracious in what he does in giving us this story because for most of us, because we live in the church age, and the Bible says in the church age, we don't receive signs and wonders. And there's a reason for that. The Holy Spirit indwells us. There's that still, calm, quiet voice. There's the Word of God completed. We don't need to have those big, incredible things. But I'll tell you what, we do have them in this story. There was a whole generation of people saw this. And the lesson that they saw, I want you to not only see but feel in your mind's eye and down deep within your heart today. It is an amazing passage. And as we look at it, we will find the fine details in verses 30 through 38 of what Elijah does in this worship of God Almighty before God sends the fire. Then we'll see the fire. Uh, we, say, we held off on it last week because we just can't run over this thing and rush it. You know, it a, it's a, must have been an amazing thing to see. But we'll see the fire today, and then we'll see the finale. So the fine details is where we'll start in our portion of Scripture. And there are some majestic lessons as we look to this text. Verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. Well, why is he calling them to him? Well, up to this point, you've got the prophets of Baal. There's 450 of them. There is another 400 of the prophetesses, the uh, Asherah types. And these people glowering at Elijah, hating him for standing up against God, against their gods, in quote, the small g, and so, as we shared with you last week, this is a tailor-made thing for Baal, if he really is a god, to be able to light a fire. What do fires look like? Well, usually, when you think about a fire, it would start off with a little bit of smoldering. Have you ever started a fire with the little stick method and, and the, 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 the bow or something which turns the stick inside the little piece of log and you start to see the smoke? Well, wouldn't you expect to see a fire start that way? I mean, that would be how Baal would have done it. I mean, he's the sun god, right? 
And so on this very hot day, um, with the parched ground, it wasn't any trouble to find things that would combust relatively easily. And I almost had a little sneaking suspicion that wouldn't you, though, though the prophets of Baal couldn't throw in a, an ember or two because Elijah would have watched them, wouldn't they purposely make sure that what's there is good and dry? Because, you know, after all, they've never seen a miracle either. Uh, you know, uh, wouldn't, but they're crying out to Baal. And of course, as it comes to our, towards noon, that's when Elijah speaks to them about their own superstitions. For them, it should be the time when Baal could wake up at midday, when the sun is its hottest, and make this thing start on fire. Wouldn't you expect to see them stop every now and then, take a look, see if there's any wisp of smoke? Wouldn't you expect a little bit of that? And eventually you'd see that smoke and then you'd hope to see just a little ember and then it would just take off and be a big bonfire, you would assume. That would be how Baal would answer as far as they're concerned. That's what they're looking for. And nothing happens. Absolutely nothing. And Elijah speaks to them about their superstitions and they begin to cry out because their religion, this false religion, remember this is the God who is self-existent versus the God who is non-existent. Their religion, an evil religion, and there are such things. This evil religion told them that whatever you do to your body, God will respond to. And so here they are saying, wake up. What do you do to wake up somebody? You push them a little bit. You pinch them a little bit. Try to get them to really wake up. Something, you know, pinch me to see if I'm awake is what we say. A little bit of pain. And so here they are in real pain, cutting themselves and lancing themselves. And the blood begins to flow, even as our text says. And so for three hours, they cry out. They cry out until they're worn out. And Elijah says to the people, come near to me. It's my turn. It's the turn of God Almighty here. Come to me. And you'll notice what he does. Come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Now, if we go back to chapter 19, verse 10, we read these words. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. He's saying that the children of Israel, as they went away from God Almighty, tore down his altars. And you know, often that happens when one culture, so to speak, replaces another culture. This is a religious culture. They would have not only torn down the altar of God, but they would have used the stones to build some false god's altar. Here on the mountainside, there was an altar. It would have been an old one. Because at one time, the, the, they were supposed to be meeting in Jerusalem at the temple. The nation split. So the old altars from ancient days would have been fallen down in a disrepair. And here is one close by. He repairs that altar that the people would have known about from as the altar of their parents from days gone by. But it's not just the parents' altar. It's the altar of the Lord. It's His. It's interesting that He takes into His mind and into His heart the responsibility of repairing an altar. And there is a prescription in the Scriptures as to how this is to be done. The prescription, if you go back into the Scriptures, you find that God said they will be 12 stones. They are unhewn stones, no work of man upon them. These are just rocks that you'll find. And I know that most of us like things that are nice, a little bit polished, but that was not to be with the altars that honored God. These were to be 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. 
isn't that fascinating. He's still with 12 stones. He's still following the prescription of God. And yet this is the 10 tribes that had been in rebellion against the two that were in the southern part of the nation at this point. And so he begins to repair this altar prescribed. And yet God says, you will not walk on my altar. Today, when they dig up a city and they try to identify what that city was, the remains of a city in, in the Middle East, in Israel, they will look at the altars to see how they're designed. A Canaanite altar had stairs going up onto it. And so the pagans would worship their gods walking upon the altar. God says, no, that will not be because that's an unclean thing in my eye. You will place that only the sacrifice upon that altar, not yourself, only the sacrifice. And so what, what the archaeologists find is when they find an altar with the stairs, they know that's not an Israelite settlement, it's something else. But when they find an altar that has no stairs beside it, they know that was Jewish. So there are certain things that are telltale signs for them because God gives a prescription. It will have 12 stones, it will be unhewn, no work of yours. This is something about God, to worship God, and it will be to, in my name. And that's what we find being emphasized. Isn't it interesting to see that we see verse 30, where he says, He repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Verse 32, Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. It's almost like God backs up and tells you again what Elijah is doing. God doesn't stutter in the word. God gives us these things to be assigned to us to teach us something. And so let's look at what he's teaching us. The first one is the emphasis of what is this altar? Whose altar is it? And are these people right with God? Here's how he describes it. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. The unity of God's people, it was important. What was happening when the two uh, parts of the nation split up. Well, they were concerned that they would lose their people in the north down to the south because they were continuing to worship. So they set up other altars because they didn't want to lose that control. And yet the call to Israel is, you are my people. And so the altar still remained the same. Twelve tribes still represented. And every time they were to build an altar or built an altar, they were to remember that they're God's people. God's chosen people. They could not be separated. And it was sin that did that for them and to them. It's interesting to notice that God says, I've called you this nation. Israel shall be your name. Jacob was the recipient of that. Here's his new name. It is Israel, the people of God, God's people. And so God's the one in control of even this. They had been an apostate nation and were following after false gods. And God says, I still own you. There's a covenant-keeping God that's being established. And it was with Jacob that God made that covenant that had begun with Abraham and was passed on down and now to the 12 tribes. And they were supposed to remember that. Prescriptions are important from God's Word. It's interesting when you read commentaries that there are some, you know, who um, would decry how churches have lost some of their traditions. And, uh, you know, the old writers will talk about the prescriptions of what was the old religion, religious behavior of churches in America. Um, be careful when you read those kind of commentaries to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And the reason I say that is this. God does have certain prescriptions. And there are the small details in our passage we're about to jump into that Elijah follows through with. And then God works in the small details. 
often one of the tests of a true prophet versus a false prophet or a true church versus a false church or a true believer versus someone who's just a professing Christian is what does he do in the small things? That's often a test. So it's not so much that God, gives, God puts his imprimatur of blessing only in what has been traditional church. However, there are the small things that God requires of real Christianity that God does prescribe. That is what's called sanctification. Young people, I'm saying this to you as well. We're living in a world where there's a tendency to, to continue to only honor young, youth and honor new and honor exciting and all of those things. And you'll come home and sit down with mom and dad around the dinner table and you'll learn about the way things used to be. Or you'll learn about things that are really important to them. And you might be sitting there hearing these things and you think, well, that's just... That's child's play. That's small stuff. It's small potatoes. It doesn't matter a whole lot in the big scheme of things. But, but listen for the prescription details, the prescriptions of what honors God that can only be caught because you've been walking with God for a while. That's why you need parents. They've been walking with God for a while. And they get to share with you those things that are important. And that's true as well in discipleship. As someone's walked with God for a while, there are things that need to be passed along to those who are willing to listen. That's what Sunday school teachers are for. They're pulling together the prescriptions that God gives. Here's what God prescribes as the behavior, the activity, the purpose of a believer in a difficult day. So listen for those things. That's a valuable lesson. And we find that in this text. This is God's altar. And when it boils down to it in this lesson for Hanover Baptist Church, this is God's altar, so to speak, too. He owns this place. He owns your heart. You're a part of this altar. We are raised up as an altar, so to speak, in the name of the Lord, not any one individual. Yeah, this is not Crookshank's church. This is supposed to be God's. And so our hearts, our lives are to be His. And that only is real if your heart really is God's. So it's that the small details. Isn't it interesting that the Lord would say words like this, He who is faithful in small things will be faithful in much, but he who is not. You know, it's interesting that the Lord does measure the small things. And what does God use? The small things. 850 antagonists plus Ahab and his wife against little old Elijah? The small things count. They really do. And your life counts before the Lord. It's a, it's a tremendous thing. Then we'll see some more small details. So then God backs up. He says, now that you understand the purpose of this, understand the concept that this altar is God's and that the people are still claimed by God, the people of Israel. Verse 32, then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. But Lord, you just said that. Yeah, he did. He's reminding us that God builds altars through his people building that altar. And it's in the name of the Lord. It is his. So the family altar at home, the family altar or the individual altar of your heart is to be in the name of the Lord. Whatever you built, whatever you do. Do all to the glory of the Lord. Let that be a challenge and also a practical application for your heart. What you do, is it for and in the name of the Lord? Can he put his stamp of approval upon it? And so he is building this altar. Lord, this is yours. 
Is he afraid that if he doesn't build it quite right that God won't bless? No, he's got no fear about whether God can bring fire. But what for his heart was real was this is God's altar. I want to do it well in everything. Do all for the glory of God. Do it well. If it's worth doing, do it well and do it right the first time. So he says this, he built the altar in the name of the Lord and made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. Now, this was not just an afterthought. He knew what he was doing. There was to be no doubt in all these people's mind that there was no trickery going on here. And so he didn't know how God was going to send fire. What God was going to do was going to prove in a very unique way that God was in charge. <clears throat> but instead of making them think there's trickery, he's going to flood this altar with water. He's got a plan. So he digs a trench around it. Notice what it says further in verse 33. And he put the wood in order. How do you put wood in order? How many fire builders are around here? No fire builders? No, I know there's some fire builders. There are some fire bugs. Absolutely. My, my boys in my household uh, love building fires. There is a right way to build a fire, right? Those fire bugs, coal, is there a right way to build a fire? Absolutely, because there are ways that don't burn well. Correct. And you know what? You'll know that there is a plan. There's a purpose. There's an orderliness to this fire. Interestingly enough, we're going to find him specifically focused upon details. These details are there. And we're going to notice that it's different than what is given in the details of the sacrifices that uh, the prophets of Baal tried to put together. Verse um, uh, 26, so they took the bull which was given them, they prepared it and called on the name of Baal. It's like it was an afterthought. They just threw this thing on there and they, let's get busy. Let's get down to it. There is no hurry with Elijah. Now, if God's going to do something, he'll do it in his time. It's important for us to approach things in God's way. And so he places the wood upon the altar in order. There's an orderliness. There's a purposeful way. There is no sleight of hand. And the people watch in quiet, thirsty silence. They see him at work. Places the wood on the altar. Cut the bull in pieces. This is by God's prescription. Laid it on the wood. The sacrifice was important. Though we would say, let's see the fire, Elijah focuses on the sacrifice. It's interesting, isn't it? This is all the opposite of what we would expect. He takes the time to work upon this. Believers, this is how we're to operate in our lives too. We want fast answers, but God doesn't always work that way. He will answer. There will be God's purpose and plan evident, and it will be seen. And so he cuts the bull in pieces, puts it upon the altar in its prescribed order and way. Leviticus 1, 6 through 8 would describe some of that. And he says this, Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. People say, well, where would you get that? Well, not far from the ocean. But guess what? It's going to take some time to pour this water, to go get the water and then pour it on the sacrifice. And the water is just being poured out of these pots. He says, do it. And then he says, do it again. And then he says, do it again. And there is this intended purpose to make this thing so drenched with seawater that you cannot possibly have put some trickery, some, some coal under there. 
I mean, where would he have had it in the first place and kept it stored away at this point in time? And so he pours this water, has this poured water put upon the sacrifice. Then he said in verse 34, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. Can you just imagine a drenched, dripping, wet, stony pile of stones and a sacrifice that's freshly killed and water all over the place? That's the sacrifice. Very interesting to see what happens in verse 36. It came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. Now, why does it say that? For a very good reason. The evening sacrifice is the time when in the temple, the evening sacrifice at three o'clock was offered upon the altar. And interestingly enough, it's also the time when Jesus Christ died. And isn't it also interesting that Elijah and Moses in the transfiguration were discussing with Jesus is death. What a connection. When you see this with Elijah standing here at the evening sacrifice, about ready to say to the Lord, glorify yourself. There is a connection point which makes you and I say, let's look at redemption as well. There is an incredible lesson that the people were about to learn. And the detail of the evening sacrifice is what not only ties them to God's command, but it ties us to the death of Jesus Christ. He died as our substitute. That's what the sacrifices were for, uh, this type. Verse 36, it came to pass at the time of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, this is a short prayer, two verses, very short prayer. He prays before these people to hear. He says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, no, Israel, again, the 12 stones, that concept of covenant relationship with God Almighty, the God ownership over them. He says to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. The God who is existent, self-existent, versus a God who is non-existent. Lord, let it be known this day. The interesting thing, believers, is this. Our world doesn't know God exists. There's a whole part of this world that acts like they have other gods. And there's a whole bunch of people who call themselves Christians who have made up a God in their mind of who God really is. But you know what? God really does exist. And what he does when he reaches an unsaved heart and soul is he helps them to know this very same truth, that he is God and he does live. He exists and he purchased us with his son's blood upon the cross of Calvary. God lives. And though there are a lot of false gods and false uh, groups trying to catch our attention, there is only one who deserves all of our attention. And so Elijah speaks to him, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, present tense, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And then he says something interesting, and I am your servant that I have done all these things at your word. Now, why would he be so selfish to say that? I don't believe he's being selfish. All along, he's been saying, there is the God who is self-existent before whom I stand. Ahab, there's the God who's self-existent before whom I stand, and there will be no rain. 
In other words, somebody's got to be bringing a message. It's going to be the messenger. God's the one who does the work, but he does send messengers in the way to bring a message. And believers, don't you dare think that your role is being a testament of Jesus Christ, saying, as God lives before whom I stand, don't think that that's arrogant. There's an unsaved world out there that needs to know you are real and your testimony is real. Do not be afraid of identifying with the God who exists and is the self-existent one. You need to stand for Christ. That's what we're called to do, no matter what happens around you. And Elijah teaches us that lesson. And that lesson is kind of underlined again because there's this parallel expression. Look at verse, the comparison between 36 and 37. Because we see, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known that this day that you are God in Israel. Verse 37, hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. It's very poetic, but God exists. I serve. God exists. Let this people remember they are to serve because he owns them. That is what every believer does in his lesson of life. Speaking about the God who exists and I'm serving him. God exists. You need to serve him too. Isn't that what we find here? It's a very simple prayer. And what's fascinating to me is when we think about Elijah, we think of him as being the servant of God who prayed and prayed and prayed. Effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And he did pray and pray and pray. But not all prayers have to be long. There are all kinds of different purposes in prayer, aren't there? Pastoral prayer. Don't you dare think that you need to pray like I do as I do on a Sunday morning. I, that's not, it's a pastoral prayer. But I'm trusting that it also helps you dads Think in terms of being a prayer warrior for your family and interceding. I'm also trusting that the purpose of corporate prayer is being fulfilled, much like we try to do on a Wednesday night. But if you can't pray just because of the way I do, that's okay. You don't have to have long, long, um, disorderly, loud prayers. You know, sometimes people in their unsaved nature um, speak untruth to the loudest that they can because they know it's not true in their heart. It's not length. It's not loudness. It's not any of these things. It really is the, the, the God that we're, being, we're praying to. He's the audience, and we get to be able to sit there and be a part of that audience and hearing God's name praised. So believer, if you aren't so sure about your prayer abilities, that's okay. Keep practicing. Keep praying. And here we find such a simple prayer. I think what's interesting, too, is what it says here, that Elijah came near and said, back in verse 36, you know, if fire is going to come from this altar, what would you do? Um, oh, God of Israel, Glorify yourself today. He had such confidence in God. He had such confidence in God's promises. He poured water on that altar because he knew God was still going to do what God was going to do. Because it was to be a lesson to people. There is a powerful lesson about to come. And yet he draws near to this altar as people are watching and he prays this prayer. So there must have been some short period of time where he must have stepped back because something incredible happens. When the fire comes. Now, you know, fire builders, once again, how does fire work? 
Fire is one of the only things in this earth that goes uphill faster than it goes downhill, right? It does. It's supposed to. I mean, it goes uphill. You have the superheated gases that go up, and it catches things on fire above it. And that's what fire does. You, watch, you look at a house, when it's burning down, it seems to work its way up, and then it just brings the house down, I think is what it does. It's that the fire has a nature, and so they're going to see something that doesn't follow fire's nature. This is not how fire works. It's not what fire does. But yet they, the people recognize that this is fire and they find out where it comes from. It doesn't start as a little spark inside there and you don't see a little bit of smoke as Elijah continues to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. No, God brings an incredible vision to these people that as they see this fire fall, they know that it unmistakably has come from the living God. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell. What a statement. Do you wonder if there's any sound? I'd like to know. You know, you think about lightning. Usually lightning brings a thunderbolt. But wouldn't it have been something if there's no sound? It doesn't have to make a sound. It's fire. Usually what we think about a fire is the crackling. Well, it hasn't touched the altar yet. Fire of God falls upon this altar. And what is really fascinating to me is the details again. Look at what it says. The fire fell and it consumed the burnt sacrifice. That was first. Because Elijah took the time to make sure this was right. This is the lesson. The sacrifice is consumed so that the people aren't. Our God is a consuming fire. Why did Jesus Christ die upon the cross of Calvary? It's so that the sacrifice would be consumed when He cried out, I thirst, so that you and I are not. He took our place, the innocent for the guilty. So the fire comes down and the very first thing it touches and the first thing that is swallowed up and engulfed is the sacrifice. There's a lesson there for us. And then the wood, it says. The wood then is burned and consumed. And then the stones are consumed. And then the dust, and it licked up the water. Well, I'll tell you, when I was a kid, I used to just think, well, boom, it's gone. But when you see what God says, it is a different thought process, isn't it? And it goes from the top to the bottom. It's not a fire I'm familiar with, but it is a fire that was unmistakable in its lesson for you and for me and for all of those people who watched, and they can't avoid it. Verse 39, now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Jehovah lives. He is God. And Baal is not. And anything else is a poor, cheap, shabby substitute. God lives. The lesson for them was a lesson that they knew from their history. This is God's altar. And on God's altar, he claimed that sacrifice. And then he was saying, because of this sacrifice, I have claimed you once again, people. And they say, yes, you are God. If 
you don't know Christ as your Savior and yet you see Him upon the cross of Calvary with His blood being shed so that you might live, understand that His life was sacrificed. He was consumed so that you might be owned by God and live to serve Him. And let it be your voice that's also heard saying, The Lord, He is God. Believers, remember that when He saved you on that day, He was holding you as his own precious child and he has given you his name and he has claimed you and you have a covenant with him. He's not going to let you go and you are to cry out when you once again remember every single time that the sacrifice was consumed by the fire of God's wrath. Remember and cry out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. He owns us. The story ends with this finality, finale in verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. You know, isn't it interesting that this is not a politically correct book? I had my brother-in-law told me yesterday, he says, Did you know that there is a politically correct verse to only a boy named David? Remember that story, that little song that you'd sing with the little kids? Only a boy named David, only a, a little brook, only a boy named David, but five little stones he took. And one little stone went in the sling, and the sling went round and round, round and round and round and round, and he let that stone go, and the, and the giant came tumbling down. That's the song. But he says there's a politically correct verse that now says uh, the stone went up in the air. Well, what happened to Goliath? Well, I don't know. Really? Evil does get defeated. It always will be defeated. And it will be defeated with a sound blow from God Almighty. I know that this world is, is seeming to fall apart, believers, and it is a tough thing to watch. But I would encourage you to know that those who are hating Israel should watch out when they see the fact that God doesn't forget and evil is defeated, when it will be in his time. I don't know when that will be, but God will win. God always defeats his enemy. He exists and their gods do not. So rest assured in that promise, but also rest assured that you are claimed by God and have a job to do until he calls you home. Be faithful because God will win. And we look at this text of Scripture and we find that Elijah, and I like the way the New King James puts it, he executed them there. That means there's a reason for it. Execution doesn't happen because somebody just goes and kills somebody. It's actually a terminology that relates to a, a some kind of adjudication. You go back to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 13 and Deuteronomy chapter 17, and the Bible's particularly describes the punishment for those who would lead his people away from honoring God as false prophets. They were to be executed. There's a good reason. I mean, this is really what government does. It executes judgment upon evil, and this is evil in God's people. And so it would be the only thing you would expect to have happen. doesn't mean that Elijah did all the killing. It means that Elijah oversaw it. And why would God do that? Because here you have these enemies of God who left to themselves and even after seeing the fire fall will not say, oh yes, this is God. They're false prophets. And even if one of them did repent and one of them turns around and says, yes, this is God, but I've been the false prophet. Deuteronomy 13 says my life is forfeit. 
they would see it as appropriate. He brings them to the brook. Why? Because when you bring them to that place and their blood is shed into the river, there is not a place that the memorial is built. It was just the way they were in their day. And so instead, it was a wiping out of this error from the children of Israel in that generation. It was appropriate. It had to happen. God's will will prevail. So believers, let it be an encouragement to you to know that God will not forget his nation. God will not forget good, but God will always honor it. I guess if I were to give you a couple of lessons to remind you in our sharing of this um, recounting of what occurred here today, I would like to remind you that God does measure the details. He measures the small things. And though we may think in terms of bigger things, let us never forget those things that God prescribes. What does God want? What does he desire from our heart? And God does honor being faithful in the small things. Don't forget that. Remember, too, that the fire fell. It was a reminder to us that God is mighty and he can do anything. I love what A.W. Pink does in one of his paragraphs as he speaks about some of the challenges we face. I want you to listen to this paragraph and listen closely to the words I, there are so many good little thoughts in here that maybe, just maybe there's something in here just for you. He says, once again, we would remind the reader, this incident is recorded for our learning and for our encouragement. The Lord God is the same today as he was then, ready to show himself strong on the behalf of those who walk as Elijah and trust him as he did. Are you faced with some difficult situation, some pressing emergency, some sore trial? Then place it not between yourself and God, but rather put God between it and you. Meditate afresh on his wondrous perfections, his infinite sufficiency, Ponder his precious promises, which exactly suit your case. Beg the Holy Spirit to strengthen your faith and call your faith into action. So too with God's servants, if they are to accomplish great things in the name of their master, if they are to put to confusion his enemies and gain the victory over those who oppose, if they are to be instrumental in turning the hearts of men back to God, then they must look to him to work in and by them. They must rely on his almighty power, both to protect and to carry them fully through the discharge of arduous duties. They must have a single eye to God's glory in what they undertake and give themselves to believing and fervent prayer. Take a moment or two and worship your Lord as you apply these things to your heart, and then I'll close. Father, I pray that as we have shared this, the facts of this story, that they would not be cold, dead facts, but that by your Spirit you will help our eyes to see and behold what occurred in those days, what those people saw. May we see the parallels to the sacrifice being consumed and remember that as they stood there in awe, they realized that could have happened to them. But because the fire fell upon the sacrifice and it was acceptable, they turned and they said, the Lord, he is God. Father, may we once again be refreshed at the sight of Calvary. 
May we see the Son of God dying in our stead. May we see His precious blood being shed so that we might live. And may we remember that it's because of His death the burden of sin is removed from us and it is swallowed up in the empty tomb. Lord, thank You for the great truth that we see in this passage and may they be applied to our hearts. Teach us to learn and teach us to value what You have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.